Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious morning, for the sun, Lord, rising over the horizon, giving warmth to the earth. We ask that the sun of righteousness would rise in our hearts this morning, giving warmth to our souls. Would you help us to understand your word? Would you help us to ask good questions and to accept true answers from Scripture? Lord, we know that there are many different interpretations and positions around texts like this, especially Romans 9, 10, and 11, and we ask for faithfulness in our handling of it and confidence in your handling of your purpose of election. At the end of the day, Lord, we need to submit to your will, your divine decree, your intention for humanity, and we ask that you would help us to understand it that we might be faithful to pray, that we might be faithful to evangelize, that we might be faithful to wait and watch and listen uh, for the outcome of your redemptive plan of history. And we ask that you do all this for Christ's glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's good to be back in the Sunday School classroom with you. This will be my last uh, dip into Romans, uh, the book of Romans with you. The elders will be finishing up the remainder of the, of the book over the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week, Marshall will be teaching the remainder of Romans chapter 11. And uh, he and I got together a couple weeks ago to talk through this. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 11 clearly divides into three major parts, although parts two and three are largely related to one another. And you probably see that in the outline of your Bible. There's the remnant of Israel, the Gentiles being grafted in, and the mystery of salvation, which is, is hard to divorce from section 2. And so we're only going to be looking at verses 1 through uh, 10 this morning. I know your handout says 1 through 24. I'll amend that when it gets posted on, on the website. Uh, but we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, and then Marshall will uh, cover verses 11 through the end. Uh, please don't miss, and I should say, I want to say this now at the beginning as we prepare to look through this chapter. Don't miss that Paul, as he brings to conclusion this, uh, well, which we said earlier is not really an excursus, but this, uh, this discussion about the relationship of God to the people of Israel, the relationship of Israel to the church, and God's purposes and election. Uh, through the covenant of grace, he brings it to a conclusion here in chapter 11. And even though this is one of the most hotly contested uh, parts of Scripture, as I said in my prayer, and as you all well know, I'm sure many different interpretations have been put forth uh, about this passage, these three chapters. And Paul is clearly emotionally invested in this entire conversation uh, I have great uh, pain, he says. My heart aches over my kinsmen, Israelites, according to the flesh. I have great anguish, he says in chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, has God rejected his people emphatically? By no means, chapter 11, verse 1. And so Paul, in the midst of this discussion, uh, is clearly not disassociating himself from the, the emotional component of it. But look at how he ends. Look with me very quickly. Uh, at verse 33. And Marshall will deal with this next week. I won't steal any of his thunder, but look at verse 33. After the entire discussion is said and done, what's the role of Israel in the economy of God, both now and then to the, to the end of time? 
What about the fact that they've been rejected, justly rejected for a time because of the hardness of their heart? They've sought righteousness by the law, not righteousness based on grace. Otherwise, it would no longer be grace. All of these accusations leveled against them, just accusations leveled against the nation of Israel that he's talking about largely in view here in chapter 11. And yet he ends, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. You hear him there saying, who are you to ask the potter, right? How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who are we to say, Lord, don't you realize how offensive this is to us? Or how much we wish that you would do it differently than this? Who are we to say that? Who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Speaking of Israel there, do their works of the law, their, uh, their, uh, it says in verse 6, if it is no longer on the basis of works, do their works of the law entitle them to something that they might be repaid by God? Rather, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So this great doctrinal section of Paul's letter to the Romans ends in doxology, right? And you've heard me say this before. You've heard others say this, I'm sure. Theology leads to doxology. And it's not the mind that ignores the difficult parts of Scripture or tries to avoid the difficult parts of Scripture because they're difficult that results in praise and worship and wonder and awe. It's the one that dives deep into them and discovers the riches of God as he describes himself and he unfolds his plan and explains his doings in the world to us. Then we respond with praise because we know who we're worshiping. At the key of this uh, opening section of Romans chapter 11, you'll see at the top of your handout the verse I have listed there, Romans 11 chapter 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that's sort of the, the answer to Paul's argument uh, as, as he's been working through this section. Well, let's, let's backdrop this a little bit, what we, we'll call the run-up to Romans 11. You know that this is the end of this section. I won't go into too great a detail. You have it listed for you there in your handout. Hopefully this will draw our attention back to the beginning of chapter 9 through 10 and help to tie the knot between some of the things that we've already looked at and that we'll see this morning. God's word has not failed. Uh, that's the question that he begins this section with. God, has God's word failed? What about the fact that it appears that the nation of Israel has been cast off? And he says in chapter 9, verse 6, the word of God has not failed, right? Scripture shows that God has always decided who he was, his people would be. And those are the true descendants of Abraham, not the ethnic descendants of Abraham. What we would call the spiritual Israel, the spiritually elect Israel, the true Israel of God. And he gives examples, three of them, uh, in... Uh, Chapter 9, we have the example of Isaac and Ishmael. You remember, Isaac is the child of promise. Is, uh, Ishmael is a child of the flesh. He's a legitimate child of the flesh, but he's not a child of promise. And that's the beginning of what we see, this division between the line of the flesh and the line of the covenant. And so we see that beginning with Ishmael and Isaac, and then he says Jacob and Esau, same thing. They're twins. They're even more both legitimately descendants of the flesh. You could make an argument, perhaps, that Ishmael was born from another mother, and so maybe that's why he's out. Well, so let's go, okay, let's make that argument. Jump ahead to 
Jacob and Esau. They're twins of the same father and mother in the womb at the same time. And before either of them had done anything good or bad, which have you ever read that and thought, good? I mean, Jacob was as bad as Esau. Before any of them, either of them, I should say, had done anything, either good or bad, God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated in order that his purpose and election might continue. It's all about God's sovereignty. He's the one that is setting the conditions for his people to be brought in to the kingdom of God by grace through faith. Then he points to Pharaoh in verses 14 through 19. Now, obviously, Pharaoh is no part of the nation of Israel, but Gentiles are, right? That's been a large part of his argument already in these chapters. And will be here in chapter 11, the relationship between those who are outside of the ethnic people of Israel. And he draws our attention to Pharaoh. And he says, speaking of both Israel and the Gentiles in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on you, but on God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, I raised you up God's sovereignty In Pharaoh's life, the Pharaoh who oppressed the people of Israel, who made their lives a misery. For this reason I raised you up, that I might show my power by bringing you down. So then he has mercy on whomever he wants. And he, verse 18, hardens whomever he will. Now we'll get to this in the coming weeks in our morning sermon series in Exodus. But we see this uh, striking back and forth in Exodus chapters 5 through 10 of Pharaoh hardening his heart. But what else does it say? And God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we see this back and forth because there's both a passive and an active hardening that goes on in the lives of those who do not love Jesus Christ. And those who, whose hearts are hardened are those who harden their hearts. And those who harden their hearts are those whose hearts are hardened And that's what puts God in the driver's seat, and yet man responsible for the outcome of our eternal state. God's sovereignty and election continues in chapter 9 as as Paul describes the potter and the clay. He has the right, God does, to use the clay, his clay, the clay that he created according to his own will. Uh, What's even more striking than the illustration that Paul uses here is that no potter makes clay. He takes clay and uses it how he wants, yet God actually made us out of nothing. He made all things out of nothing. So his, um, if I can make up a word here, his potterness is greater than any potter. And his right over his clay is greater than any other potter's right over the clay that he uses at his wheel. And so Paul makes this argument that God has the right even as a potter does, to choose what he will do with everything that he is making. And even the prophets affirm this. We see this in uh, chapter 9, uh, verses 25 to 29, as he quotes Hosea and Isaiah on a number of occasions. So God's word has not failed because God has always been sovereign, and the promises he has made have been according to his decree, according to his will. And Israel's disobedience then, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, is a disobedience of self-righteousness. That's been their principal 
problem is self-righteousness. They have tried to pursue a righteousness that is not by faith, but Israel, verse 31, pursued a law that would not lead to righteousness, and they didn't even succeed in reaching that. And so there's a double failure in view here. And why a failure? Is it because God's being mean to them? Because God's holding out before them something unattainable? No, but because they didn't pursue it by faith. They didn't pursue it by faith, but rather by works, by their own effort. And that's been the problem. That continues to be the problem. And we'll see that come up again uh, very clearly in chapter 11. Their righteousness by works brought a stumbling block to them. They stumbled over Messiah, didn't they? This is very clear in the New Testament that Israel stumbled over the coming Messiah. Why? Because he was promising a gospel that undid everything that they had thought they were doing for themselves. And so they stumbled. And so Israel's pursuit of righteousness by works brought a stumbling block, and the, uh, the failure, excuse me, or the righteousness that comes by faith rather brings us to Christ, which is what we see in chapter 10, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven or who will descend into the abyss. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so it's a righteousness that comes by faith that God has always had in view. We'll see that again in chapter 11 as well. Righteousness by faith comes through hearing the preached word. Righteousness through faith by faith comes through hearing the preached word in Romans 10, 14 through 17. But on the other hand, A failure to hear the word is a result of and results in hardness of heart. A failure to hear the word results in and is a result of hardness of heart. And so Paul brings us to chapter 11 with a number of unanswered questions. A number of unanswered questions. First of all, the question that Paul begins to answer, especially in these first 10 verses is does this present rejection of Israel mean a full and final rejection of Israel? Well, we'll answer that as we go through the text, but that's the first question in view. Okay, Paul, righteousness by the law, no good. Righteousness by faith, they didn't attain it. God hardens whoever he wills, looks like Israel, and he shows mercy and compassion to whoever he wants. That looks like the Gentiles. So does this mean that God has forsaken Israel? Does that mean that the present rejection, which is very clear in the text... Uh, means a full and final rejection of Israel. And so that's the first question that we have before us coming to chapter 11. Number two, has the church, speaking of uh, the, the new covenant majority Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, replaced Israel? And so Paul's going to deal with, and Marshall will deal with this far more than I will today, the, the, the so-called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. And we really see that most clearly in the... Uh, the olive tree illustration or analogy starting in verse 17. I'll just let that hang over you until Marshall answers it. Uh, Next, are God's promises to Israel only to be given to the church? Those who are descendants of Abraham are those who have faith. And so does that mean that the only people who receive the outcome or the, the tangible outcome even of the promises are the church? And lastly, are God's promises to Israel only to be fulfilled in the future? 
So let's say that you get to the beginning of chapter 11 and you, you, you reach the conclusion that it seems like uh, we're in a parenthetical period, which I hesitate to use that language because the notion of the church as a parenthesis is, is really rooted in historic dispensationalism, which we reject out of hand as being uh, incorrect and unbiblical in, in nearly all of its conclusions. And yet... There is a sense that you could get to chapter 11 and say, well, it seems like right now, even as you read through chapter 11, there's a fullness that we're waiting for, right? The fullness of the Gentiles and so forth that he'll get to uh, later on in this chapter. In verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. So does that mean what's left for Israel is only in the future? Ignore the earlier questions. Ignore the question, has the church replaced Israel? Ignore the question... Are Israel's promises only given to the church? Let's just ask the question, is Israel's future only in view in God's economy? That's a legitimate question that we come to at the beginning of chapter 11, and Paul will answer all of these in this chapter, and I think very clearly he'll answer them in this chapter. Um, I don't think that there should be as much uh, consternation and confusion over what Paul's saying here. Uh, there are controlling verses throughout the book of Romans and throughout chapters 9 through 11 that help us. We have to remember, we have to remember that not all descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. That's a controlling verse. That verse sets the tone for everything else we read when we read the word Israel, when we talk about promises and we look at the future. That's a controlling verse. Um, and there are others as well in this section, and so we'll get to at least some of them as we look at chapter 11 today. So as God rejected Israel, look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Paul is emphatic. Chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath? By no means. God is right even in his present infliction of wrath upon the people of Israel uh, as he's uh, working out his plan of salvation even for them. So let's look at this notion of the remnant in chapter 11 as we come to verse 1. Paul's thesis is essentially, his goal is to answer the question of whether or not God has rejected Israel. So here he is, chapter 11. Uh, actually, let me do this. Let me read chapter 11. I think that'll help us uh, avoid having to go back and forth too much. I'll just read, I'll read the whole chapter uh, because I think it'll be helpful. And I know that I'm going to touch on things that are going to only... Um, uh, open up questions rather than answer them, but again, uh, Marshall's not here to defend himself, so we'll just leave that stuff for him for next week. <laughs> Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that's not meant to be taken as all people, but those from all parts of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And now he begins to get into his analogies about the relationship between the two. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Notice not works. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Honestly, I don't think it's that confusing. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That's really going to be the trickiest verse in the whole thing, is verse 26. What does he mean by in this way? As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is beginning to deal with question number one. Does this present rejection of Israel mean a full and final rejection of Israel? There's no getting around what he says in verse 1a. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Whatever your theology about the relationship between the church and Israel, about the end times, about what's going on in the Middle East right now, and there are a number of things that we could say, whatever your conclusion is about all of those things, it has to include Paul's very explicit statement in chapter 11, verse 1, God has not rejected his people. Period. Now, well, period. There's some other things that need to be said. Who are his people? And what do we mean by rejected? We'll get to that. But Paul says very clearly here, and, and he says it by way of illustration. So we get to chapter 11. All right, Paul, it seems like Israel's out. Gentiles are in, right? No. How do I know? Prove it. For I myself am an Israelite, verse 1b, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul, in other words, is saying, what are you talking about? How could that possibly be the answer? All of Israel is rejected, except for the fact that I'm an Israelite and I've not been rejected. So you guys see pretty clearly here that Paul is not making a national claim about acceptance. He's making an individual claim about election from within the nation of Israel. Has God rejected all his people? Can't be that because I'm an Israelite and look at me. I love the Lord Jesus Christ and am in covenant fellowship with God the Father. And so Paul's answer to this question is his own example of God's present faithfulness to Israel. Is all that Israel is going to experience in the future? Absolutely not. Again, that was question four. Does God's present rejection in part of Israel mean a full and final rejection? Absolutely not. Look at Paul. How could someone accuse God of casting off Israel if Paul himself was saved? And don't miss this, Paul himself was the epitome of unbelief in Israel. Not only did he just, he didn't just generically reject the offer of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, he was vehemently opposed to the notion of him to the extent that he was traveling to the ends of the world to persecute those who did believe in him. So if, of all the examples that God could have used as a demonstration of his mercy and his purpose of election in Israel, even presently, none could have been more stark than the Apostle Paul. He was the persecutor of the church. And so Paul rightly points at himself as the epitome of unbelief. <clears throat> and so no matter what you say, you look out, you read the rest of this chapter about their, their disobedience and their pursuit of righteousness by works and so forth, and you think, yeah, no wonder God's rejected them. Hold on a second. That was Paul. And God didn't reject him. Why? Chapter 9, so that his purposes in election might, be, uh, might continue. That's the whole point of what he's saying in these chapters. But no matter what Paul says in chapter 11, don't miss this, everything that he says in chapter 11, uh, I need to go back to chapter 9, I believe is the, um, 927. yeah, 927. 
Um, let me make a note there to change that. <clears> Though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That's another controlling verse, isn't it? Though the number of the sons of Israel be as many as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. That's a principle that, that runs throughout this section and that we see Paul getting into here using his own example as evidence of it. So what's the remnant principle? Let's look at verses 2 through 6 together. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Well, that's interesting. Thanks, Paul. Um, if he had said God has not rejected his people Israel, super easy. If he had said he did not uh, reject his people, those whom he foreknew unto salvation, that would have been really clear. We could have gone back to chapter 8 and looked at that great golden chain. Uh, those whom he foreknew, he called and called, he elected, or he justified and justified, he glorified. That would have been easy. But he doesn't say that, and so we're left with two options. What do we mean by foreknew? Uh, who did he foreknow? There's really, again, there's two general options if you were to read about this in various commentaries and so forth. What's in view here? There's a restrictive sense. So foreknowledge in the restrictive sense means only the believing remnant. So again, this is chapter 8, verse 29, as I already mentioned. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's a foreknowledge under predestination to conformity to the image of Christ. That's ultimate glorification. And so this is a, a matter of salvation. Uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and following, the same thing. It's not as though the word of God failed. Not all our descendants uh, are true children of Abraham and so on and so forth. And so you have this option, the restrictive sense, only the believing remnant. And then there's the more broad sense. There's the, the national sense, election unto blessing or election unto a purpose, which we see in chapter uh, 10 as well. And so really there's, there's these two positions related to the foreknowledge of God, what we would call election unto salvation and election unto a purpose. And Israel nationally, as an ethnic people group in the Old Testament, were elect unto a purpose. We know that's clear because God gave them the law, because they had been given commandments to follow. Their role in the world in pointing people to the one true God was clearly designed uniquely for them out of all the peoples in the world. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I chose you not because you're special, but because you're not, and I want to demonstrate my power through you. So they were elect corporately together unto a purpose. And there's also the election in particular individually of people within Israel, the remnant, or people within the world, us, the church, chosen unto salvation. Uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans sees here the broad sense. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And what he means by that is that the, he, Paul here is going to go into the illustration or the example of Elijah, right? And what Moose says is that if the widespread defection of the Israelites for the worship of Baal in Elijah's day did not invalidate God's choice of the nation as a whole, neither will the widespread rejection of Jesus as Messiah in Paul's day result in the rejection of the nation as a whole. 
That's Moo's conclusion. Moo believes that because he appeals to Elijah, and because in Elijah's day, things were as bad as they could be, and that didn't result in the total throwing off of the nation of Israel. Example number one, Paul, right? If that's the case, then so too should we interpret foreknow in a broad sense. John Murray says the foreknowing of God, irrespective of whether or not you take it in the broad or the restrictive sense, is the only guarantee that God has not cast off his people. Because it's, he's the one that foreknew and predestined and made the plan. Now, I take Paul to be re- referring here to foreknowledge in both senses. There's certainly the broad sense, and I think the fact that he looks at Elijah and the resulting reality that the nation of Israel continued after the mass rejection of God and the Baal worship of Elijah's day. But yet, what else do we see in the very same example from Elijah's day? That within that nation, there is a a remnant. The elect, those predestined or, or foreknown unto salvation. And so I do believe that Paul has both in view here. Both the restrictive sense, God has not cast off his people whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. Of course not, he cannot. But God has also not cast off his people, those whom he elected unto a purpose, the people of Israel, irrespective of their mass rejection of the Messiah. And we'll see why as we go through the chapter. Do you you love how Paul does this? Look in verse 2. Paul always kind of uh, pokes his reader right in the eye. You ever catch that in Paul's writing? He just gives him a little eye poke, and he's like, don't you know this? Look at verse 2. Do you not know what the Scripture says about Elijah? Like, Paul here is answering this question of this imaginary uh, uh, person who's got a question. Remember, we talked about this the last time I was here in chapter 9. He's got this imaginary friend who keeps popping up over his shoulder and saying, Paul, what about the rejection of Israel? Right? And that person represents most of Paul's readers. They're going to come to these same conclusions and ask these same questions. And so Paul kind of pokes him in the eye a little bit, pokes us in the eyes like, haven't you read your Bibles? I'm not the first one to say this. You know that, right? Paul says, I'm not the first one to lay this out on pages of Scripture for you. If you'd read 1 Kings chapter 19, you would already know what I'm about to say. I think this is a great testimony to the, to the practice of what we call biblical theology, the relationship between the Testaments and how each book fits into the meta-narrative or the big scheme of redemptive history. And so Paul is saying, you should already know this. God has not rejected his people. Look at what it says about Elijah. How Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Elijah's the one that makes the argument that people think Paul is making. Lord, you've rejected them all. I'm the only one that's left. That was Elijah's argument, wasn't it? They're out to kill me. They're all gone. All the good guys are are gone. It's only bad guys left. Be done with them. Or at least be done with me because I can't take it anymore. That was Paul's, excuse me, that was Elijah's argument. He's the one, for all intents and purposes, saying what Paul here is saying is not true. In Elijah's day, one of the worst uh, seasons of national apostasy in Israel's history, Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, demolished your altars. There's no true worship. I'm the only Israelite left, and they want to kill me. But what does God say to him, verse 4? We won't turn to 1 Kings 19. This is, uh, Paul accurately represents it here. The Lord says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Now, 
Those 7,000, okay, look, jump down again uh, to verse 6. Is it by grace or is it on the basis of works? Is it by grace or is it on the basis of works? It's by grace. Who's the one that set them apart? God did. I, I have set for myself apart. I have kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Do you see how God is sovereign in election throughout history? What was Abraham doing when God called him? Worshiping the moon or something. That's been the case throughout history. What was Adam doing when God breathed life into him and made him a living creature? Nothing, because he was dead. He had no life. And it's the same for us in salvation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins apart from the sovereign work of God in salvation. It was the same in Elijah's day. Elijah thought, it's only me. And God says, Elijah, I'm the one. I'm the one that keeps my people, period. I set them aside. I set them aside. Don't miss that. I've kept them. Others have been hardened by false worship. There are others, and, and I would say the others are the majority, aren't they? The majority who harden themselves um, by their worship of Baal. However, verse 5, in the present time, just like in Elijah's time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There it is again. I mean, the word grace is all over this. Uh, he says in verse 5, so too, at the present time, so just like in Elijah's day, so also now there is a remnant chosen by grace. This application uh, to the present time we see in verse 5 is very important. The, the, the idea of at this time or in the present time often in Paul's writing has in view the bigger picture of God's salvation throughout history. And so he's, he's basically uh, identifying the way that God is working in different periods of time to culminate the work he's done one day in the future. And at this present time, just like back at that last time, God has kept a remnant. What's the implication? That throughout time, God is keeping a remnant of his people Israel. Which is why there are Jewish Christians today. Because there's always been a remnant in Israel. And there always will be, because that's how God is dealing with his people. He made promises, and those promises were not revoked in Elijah's day. Those promises were not uh, cast off in Elijah's day. They weren't cast off in Paul's day, and they remain true today. For the remnant within Israel, the spiritual remnant, those who are preserved by faith, not by works, or not by ethnicity, remember our controlling verse back in chapter 9, not all are children of Abraham who belong, or not all are Israel who belong to Israel. So this uh, concept of election and hardening in verses five through seven, you see that in your outline. You should see, are there three or four points in your outline? I work off a different one. There are, there are four. We'll look at those together. Right. <laughs> we'll look at those together. Uh, these four points related to election and hardening. Uh, interestingly, look at verse 5 with me again. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. I understand why um, our translations use that word, but what's the word that's used there? Elect. 
so now, so too now. In other words, just like then, why was there a remnant? Because they were elect by God from out of the mass of Israel to be the true Israel of God. And just like then, so too now, at the present time, there is a remnant. How? Elect by what? Grace. Why is it when we hear about the doctrine of election, especially outside of circles that we swim in, when we hear about the doctrine of election, it's always pejorative. It's always disparaged as though it's somehow an unkindness of God to elect someone to salvation. And the focus is always on who? The unelect. Right, yeah, but you're right. It's always on us, right? What about all the things that I'm doing? What about, which is what Israel's arguing for here. What about works, right? We always focus on this negative kind of side of things, or people, I should say, tend to focus on the negative side of things when we deal with this wonderful, beautiful, God-exalting doctrine of election. Why should we think of it as beautiful and wonderful? Because it's by grace. It's by grace. We're going to come to this again a little bit later, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead in my notes to say this. Verse 7, it says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. But the reality is, when Paul says that, that's not to emphasize the hardness of those who are unelect, but to magnify the salvation of those who weren't hardened, even though we all deserve to be hardened. Like, have we forgotten that part? That we all deserve to be hardened? Not a one of us, to the, the cutest little baby over in the nursery right now, to the sweetest elderly person in this room. I won't make eye contact with anybody, so you don't know who I'm thinking about, but you're in here. None of those people deserve the grace of God. That's why it's called grace. As soon as we start talking about deserving it, we're no longer talking about grace, which is why Paul says, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so the doctrine of election is so wonderful. It means that out of all of the clay, all of the clay, deserving condemnation, deserving to be hardened and fired in the kiln for their sin, God broke off a chunk of it out of mercy and reshaped it, made it a new creation to be vessels of glory for God's own worship. Do you see the difference between those two views of the same topic? We need to be rejoicing in the, the glorious doctrines of grace and how God has saved us not by works, but according to his mercy. Okay, election by grace, which is what he's speaking of here, verse 5, they were elect by grace, is the opposite of salvation by works. It's no longer on the basis of works. This is what some thought. We saw this earlier in chapters 9 and 10. They thought that they could find salvation by works. If they had, that would have nullified election by grace. What's the point? If we can just work hard enough. And so what he's saying here is that elect by grace stands diametrically opposed to salvation by works. So that means that the word elect, chosen, chosen here in verse 5, is the opposite of hardened in verse 7. Those who receive grace are the elect who do so not by works and are therefore not hardened by their own sinfulness. In other words, election means grace. That's what it is. 
It's God's grace to us. The elect, go back to chapter 9, are always the children of promise, which is the grace of God towards undeserving sinners, and not the descendants of Abraham or the keepers of the law. And this is what Paul's saying here, I think, very clearly in these opening verses of chapter 11. Has God rejected Israel? No, he's never rejected Israel. Look at Israel in their worst, and he didn't reject them then. Look at me, I'm the worst, and he didn't reject me. So presently, he's not rejecting Israel. Historically, he hasn't rejected Israel. In the future, he's not going to reject Israel. But the problem is, you guys are calling it the wrong thing. It's always been, from within, an elect number, a remnant. Just like there was then, so too there is now. And you can hear all the Gentile Christians in Rome going, there are, among us. And then you can hear... Steve Adkinson saying, there are, and I'm going to try to find them. Right? You all know Steve is one of our missionaries with Christian witness to Israel. Because he believes in what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 11, that even today there is a remnant, and they are God's chosen people. Chosen by what? Ethnicity? No, by grace. Because they keep the Torah? No, because of grace. And we, back in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, need to be sent to proclaim because how will they believe if they don't hear that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for? And then what do they have to do? They just have to confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. And they're saved too. Their natural branches grafted back in. I'll leave that for Marshall for next week. But do you see how this is all coming together in these chapters? It's all a part of one whole. God's foreknowledge has always been a matter of grace, never a matter of works or ethnicity. And God's elect, as we said earlier in our time this morning, has always, they have always attained righteousness through the gospel. Through the gospel. It's God's work, his sovereign work in salvation. Again, verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men. God did. Paul insists that the remnant is chosen by grace, not by works. He's building on his er earlier argument that the choice goes all the way back to chapter 9, verses 11, where Jacob represents the remnant. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. When Rebekah had conceived children, verse 10, by one man, by one man, and uh, uh, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... She was told the younger will serve the older, excuse me, the older will serve the younger, Jacob I loved. Jacob represents the remnant out of the two. He's the remnant. And Paul is building on this argument. The contrast between grace and works uh, is throughout the book, uh, chapter 3, chapter 4, talk about the contrast between grace and works. And likely, uh, uh, likewise, the irrelevance of doing good works to being chosen. Chapter 9, verse 11, they had done nothing, either good or bad. So there's no relevance to having done certain things or being born a certain way or any of those things. There's no relevance at all to one's chosenness by God. And so the Israelites got to stop saying, but we're sons of Abraham. God can make sons of Abraham out of these rocks. And the Gentiles have got to stop saying, yeah, you guys have been cut off, so now it's our turn. (laughs) If he cut them off, don't think he won't cut you off. Nobody gets to say look at my ethnicity. Nobody gets to say, look at my law keeping. Our works and our background and our personal history are irrelevant to our chosenness by God. It's all a matter of grace. But he does here, and I think we're right on time to make it through this um, in the hour. 
He does here deal in verses 7 through 10 with this hardening principle. We've got the remnant principle, which has been at play, or in play, I should say, from the beginning of time. And now we have the hardening principle. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel nationally did. The elect obtained it, but the rest, the remainder from within that group, were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. He's quoting from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. And David, Psalm 69, says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The elect is a small remnant, as we see in verse 7, which achieved what it was looking for, namely salvation. What then? Israel failed to obtain it, but the elect, that small group within the large group, they obtained it. They found it. Uh, They... uh, laid hold of the salvation by grace alone that was exhibited to them in Jesus Christ. But the rest, which is the most of them, were hardened. Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. Now, in, a couple interesting things about this. It, as we mentioned earlier, I said I was getting ahead of my notes. We're, we all deserve hardening for sin, right? We all deserve hardening for sin. We might say the elect obtained it, but the rest were justly hardened. That's where the argument lies that's where the difficulty lies is that people tend to think of the hardening of israel as unjust oh the hardening of pharaoh of course pharaoh he was wicked well what a terrible guy pharaoh he's out there killing israelites and throwing babies in the water and oppressing the people and making them build pyramids and all that stuff and what a terrible guy hitler yeah justly hardened stalin justly hardened my grandma i don't know if i can get there Doesn't that give you trouble sometimes? That's okay. It's okay that it does. This is why who has been a counselor to the Lord? Who has told him what he should do? Who has owed him something or given him something that we should be repaid by him? This is why we struggle with this. This is why Paul has to give us probably the most curt response in the entire Bible. uh, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Yes. Hold on one second. Let's get the microphone so we can be in recorded so it'll help people at home to hear what you're asking. That's one of the hard things that I've been thinking about as we've been sitting here because I have loved ones and even friends to sit and think that they were not chosen, you know, from the beginning and to know where they'll spend eternity more than likely is just hard to reconcile in my mind. And coming from denominations that did not preach election i mean i'm firmly convinced by the scriptures that i've heard since i've been here and been taught on but it's just really hard to wrap your finite mind around that whole concept it is and it is which is why and i'm thank i'm glad you said that it's why our confession acknowledges this in its chapter on election and it says that this doctrine needs to be handled with care because it is difficult. It's, there's a reason there's three whole chapters devoted to it explicitly here in Romans, as well as really the rest of the Bible deals with it to some degree or another. It's important for us to remember a couple things. Number one, you know why there's two thieves on the cross? Does anybody know why there's two thieves? 
One thief is there so that we would never presume. I'm going to wait till my deathbed, I'll make a confession, and then I'll go to heaven. Why? Because the one thief was sitting there looking at the Son of God, knowing he was innocent, and still mocked him and cursed him, and did not turn to him in faith. One of the thieves is there so that no one would presume, I'll just hold off until the end. But the other one is there that no one would despair, because like you said, in all likelihood, but I don't know what will happen at the end of their lives and what God's going to do in anyone's heart. Paul was marching headlong towards Damascus to murder Christians and was stopped in his tracks by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that can happen to anyone. Indeed, it happens to all of us in our sin when out of his mercy and grace, he comes to us to grant salvation. And so it's true. I have loved ones that also are not believing Christians. They don't love Jesus Christ. They haven't repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. And I had this conversation with somebody else one time about the idea of, of um, getting to heaven and having your mom not be there or your spouse not be there or one of your children not be there. How can I enjoy the presence of God in heaven with that reality hanging over my head? And so this person concluded wrongly, I would say, uh, and I explained why, but wrongly that when John says in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that what that means is he's going to erase our memory of those who aren't there. So we won't have anything to be upset about in heaven. But what's the problem with that? Okay, so Rufus and I bump into each other in heaven. I say, hey, how are your parents? And you're like, my what? What, what are parents? Wait a minute, where do they come from? And all of a sudden he spends the rest of eternity trying to figure out how he existed because he doesn't have any parents because God erased them from his memory. That can't be it right? All your kids come running up to you, dad. And, and you go, wait, how do I have kids? I'm not married because your spouse wasn't. It can't be that. It can't be that God wipes away our tears by erasing our memory. And God can't erase our memory of those who will spend eternity in hell because those who spend eternity in hell will spend eternity magnifying the holiness of God in their punishment. That's their purpose for all of eternity is to point our attention to the mercy and the justice and the holiness of God. If hell stopped existing, if there are people, John Stott, a great Christian, a great pastor and theologian, adopted a perspective called annihilationalism towards the end of his life because he just said, I can't, I can't square this eternal, perpetual uh, uh, condemnation with the love of God. But the problem is, as soon as hell disappears, so does our need for salvation. What are we in heaven worshiping God for? What have we been saved from? The nothingness that out, out there? It can't be that. So here's the answer. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, when we see him, we'll be changed to be made like him in the twinkling of an eye, right? How are we going to be made like him? We'll be able to walk through doors and eat fish? That's not what he's talking about. We'll get to float through the sky and go up through the clouds in the heaven? That's not what he's talking about. It means the completion of our conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, our glorification. It's the glorification of our bodies. Yeah, we're going to have brand new bodies without aching backs and without bald heads and without all the other things that ail us. Have you ever think this morning when we go into worship and you open your hymnal and we start to sing a hymn, think to yourself how many times you do this just in verse 1. You have to take a deep breath, you know what I'm talking about, in order to keep singing. Do you realize that when we get to heaven, we'll sing and never have to take a deep breath? Our lungs will never, never fail us in worship. 
of course we're going to be remade in our bodies, but we're also going to be remade in our minds, and we'll begin to think God's thoughts after him. We will start to view even the unrighteous the way that God does with legitimate sadness over their hardness of heart, but legitimate worship of the God who deserves for his holiness to be magnified. And we have to trust that when we get there, he's going to make our minds right. Because right now, you said it, finite. My brain is so tiny, and trying to think about all of these things and what, how God's going to fix my bad thinking and wrong thinking about life and death and heaven and hell and all these other things, I'm not gonna, I can't get my head all the way around it right now. But I trust, I trust that even those that I love, when I see Christ face to face, I'm going to love him way more. And that right love for Jesus Christ and the right love for God that we'll have in his presence is going to reconcile all of our thinking about those who don't love him. And it'll put them squarely where they belong in God's economy of redemption, just like he has. Lord doesn't want anyone to be condemned, longs for all to come to salvation. And yet, all those who are hardened are self-hardened because of their sin. And that's what we all deserved. And so the mercy of God and the grace of God is magnified in the existence of hell for us, right? I know it's not easy. I probably haven't answered your uh, distress, but I hope that makes a little bit of sense anyway. As Paul here reflects on Isaiah and Deuteronomy, I would like to point out, if you were to read those two passages, Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, that God's judgment there is for Israel's sin, and yet neither of those passages are God's last word to Israel. He doesn't end in chapter 29 of Isaiah, does he? He goes on to chapter 40 where he says, comfort, comfort my people. He doesn't end in Deuteronomy 29. He goes on to Moses' song about inheriting the land and living faithfully with the Lord and him blessing them. Why? Because we're still answering the question from earlier, Has God's rejection of Israel resulted in a full and final rejection? Absolutely not. It is not permanent. Chapter 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, my brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Again, I'll let Marshall explain the details of that. But the law and the prophets both attest to the fact That what Israel is experiencing in this period of time, in Paul's writing, and now, and in Elijah's time, was a result of their own hardness. It was a result of their own hardness of heart, and it did not result in a permanent rejection or casting off of the people. Those are the key points. And I love that Paul does this. Not only do the law, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, Isaiah, attest to this, so do the Psalms. You can almost hear Jesus' words on the road to Emmaus, right? How the, the, the writings and the prophets and the law and Moses, he says, speak of me. And the same is true here. Why is it true here? Because Jesus is the new covenant for God's elect. And so as much as the Old Testament speaks of him, it speaks about the remnant. It was their own fault. Uh, David places the blame at the feet of Israel in Psalm 69. Uh, Their table became a snare and a stumbling block for them. It was their own table. They had set the table, and their eyes were darkened, and they could not see, and their backs were bent forever. This is God's pattern throughout Scripture. 
So we are at exactly the bottom of the hour. Uh, I, am, I trust that you have more questions now than I answered in, uh, in going through this uh, with you, these 10 verses. Marshall, next week, pray for him this week as he prepares to go through these last two sections. But please keep in mind, as we do, as he does, what we've talked about this morning, some of those controlling verses in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, they'll help to clarify what's being said later on. Now, I normally stick around and spend some time answering questions, but I'm going to go into the classroom back here and talk to the young kids uh, about the upcoming worship service. So I'm going to pray and allow you to spend some time fellowshipping and discussing uh, all these great things that we looked at this morning and then prepare your hearts for worship uh, together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hour we've had together to look at your word. Would you magnify in our hearts the doctrines of grace, the truth that you sovereignly choose out of your own free will, out of your mere good pleasure, from among the whole mass of sinful, hell-bound humanity, those to whom you will show mercy and have compassion. We pray that this would cause us not to grow in pride, even as Paul warns later in chapter 11, but to grow in humility that undeserving sinners have been shown such kindness by the God of the universe. I pray, Lord, that you would help even now begin to change our minds and our hearts that we would think your thoughts after you. Conform us to the image of your Son that when we encounter difficult texts that make us squirm a little in our seats, especially as we think on a human level, especially as we think with finite minds, would you help us to remember that you do everything perfectly according to the counsel of your inscrutable will and to the praise of your glory and grace. And so we trust that when we see you face to face, we'll believe exactly what you've told us is true. Help us, Lord, now in the meantime, not to lose heart or to lose hope, but to trust that the thief on the cross reminds us that we don't need to despair, that those that we love who don't love Jesus might yet still come to faith in him. And help us to be uh, zealous for evangelism, that we might be the sort of people who eagerly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to any who will hear. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.